we believe we still have uh, something a bit north of $100 billion in uncommitted resources available to, de to deploy to these objectives to get a credit flowing again. We're going to use that as carefully as we can. At this point, have no plans to come to the Congress and ask for additional resources and authority. I don't know whether that's likely or not, but at this point, have no plans to do so. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Wednesday, May 20th. On the show, we're going to take a little vacation. We are? <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're going to sit by the pool and talk about the creation of one of the complex financial products that helped us get into this crisis that we love to talk about so much. Right. But the pool is coming later because we have work to do before our vacation. Today's Planet Money Indicator. It is $350. That is how much one Planet Money listener is spending every month to keep her job. We'll have more on that story later in the podcast. But first, Adam, you had a conversation with Jillian Tett, who covers global markets for the Financial Times. She also has a new book out, Fool's Gold. Yes, Tett's book, Fool's Gold, How the Bold Dream of a Small Tribe at J.P. Morgan Was Corrupted by Wall Street Greed and Unleashed a Catastrophe. It's just out, and what she does is trace the creation of the credit derivatives that are at the heart of the global financial crisis, this this huge meltdown. So these are sort of the precursors to, like, the collateralized debt obligations and, C and synthetic CDOs and all these things that we're hearing about that are sort of toxic assets now. Exactly. So um, if, you, if you picture where these things might have been created, maybe you picture some dark, dreary boardroom with the thick smoke of cigars and evil cackles of laughter. Um, she says that's not really where it happened. She traces the beginning to a hotel in Boca Raton, Florida, very sunny by the pool. I believe there were some drinks involved. This was in 1994. A whole bunch of bankers from J.P. Morgan offices all over the world came to what they call an offsite, sort of a retreat, a conference, a way they could kick around new business ideas and just get drunk and get to know each other. I wouldn't pretend that, that particular conference was a moment when they sat down and wrote the magic formula that changed the world, but it was typical of the kind of brainstorming sessions that were taking place at the time. And at that conference, there was a debate about credit derivatives and there was a decision to move forward. It, it later became seen by some of them as a kind of symbolic moment when they thought, right, let's really play around with this idea of credit derivatives and see what we can do as a bank to develop that idea. Okay, and just to be clear, we're talking about, because you go into a lot of detail, um, it was, have you been there to the Boca Raton Hotel? I have, yes. Yeah. You say it's sugar pink? Was yes. that like a... It's a kind of old Spanish-style um, hacienda. I mean, there's several bits of the Boca Raton Hotel, um, but the old traditional bit is, is beautiful. It's very elegant, gracious, sort of Mediterranean style um, with these sort of sugar pink walls and um, lovely lawns and palm trees. It, it was it was all J.P. Morgan bankers from all over the yeah. world. and they were basically getting together, and it was the sort of swaps department, fixed income department around the world who got together. And those um, off-sites were very 
very common in the industry at the time because the idea was that if you got the bankers together, you could get them to feel bonded as a team and they would toss ideas around. Um, I mean, as far as the young bankers were concerned, most of them were not remotely interested in um, talking about highfalutin intellectual ideas. They just wanted to get drunk and have a good time and do what any young college student would do. I mean, half these guys were only just out of college and so, you know, they got together, they had drinking games, they went round and they hijacked jet skis, I think, and they threw each other in the swimming pool. And There know, might have been romantic assignations. <laughs> they could well have been, but of course the, one of the problems is that these tend to be dominated mostly by men. <laughs> so, men and white Not masters. entirely. <laughs> not entirely. But, um, but, you know, it's a young kind of, you know, energy-filled, you know, full of frolics weekend of the sort that any young group of people starting out in their career feeling that they had the world at their feet, um, feeling full of exuberance and excitement would have. So so basically the, the idea that um, they came up with here that most of them probably remembered, although some of them might not have, um, was sort of the, the idea they were kicking around was a way to make money helping banks and other financial organizations diversify their risks, basically. Right. And what she says, I just to be annoying and technical, is that a lot of these ideas were created by the Bank of New York Mellon, but J.P. Morgan was the first to popularize it and sort of let the rest of the world know about it. Mm -hmm. Never mind. Um, but so, so so let's say I am a bank and I've made a bunch of loans to like auto companies and I suddenly feel like, wait, maybe I have too many loans out to auto companies. It makes me nervous. So the So before this idea, what I could do is just sell the entire loan, like sell $3 billion in auto loans to you, Bank Alex. Right. But there's the, not that many people who can buy $3 billion of auto loans. Right. And it's kind of a big production. So what they came up with was the idea of just selling the risk. So basically, I keep the $3 billion in loans, but I go to you and I say, what I'm selling to you or buying from you is is just a guarantee that if this bunch of auto loans goes bad, you will make me whole. Sort of what eventually became known as sort of an insurance policy. But it's a way of making very quick risk transfers where you transfer the risk associated with credit and debt to someone else without having to transfer the underlying product. It's sort of technical, but it was it was a simple but at the time it was seen as such a brilliant idea. Right, because it really it can really help help a bank out if it's in it's sort of a, it's sort of a way of of addressing a need that a bank has. And the last thing in the world anyone would have thought is that this brought more danger to the system. It was the opposite. They thought this conquers risk. This this makes risk much less of a worry. So if you're a bank sitting there with lots of loans to automaker auto car companies, um, you could, for example, sell that risk on to the auto sector to somebody else um, and take on a bit more risk to, say, retailers. You could play around with your portfolio and fine-tune it in quite an efficient way. Well, that was a hope anyway. There's this other big advantage that bankers loved about this new invention, which is that it allowed the banks, frankly, to evade, work around the new rules that had come out, the Basel banking regulations, saying that you have to have a certain amount of money on hand to cover in case you lose money on one of these loans. It allowed them to have a lot less money on hand, which meant they could make a lot more bets out there on the economy and make a lot more money. So J.P. Morgan had basically created a product that let these banks get around these 
capital requirements. They originally called it Bistro, which stood for some broad index secure trust offering was the official name. The nickname, though, amongst the team was BIS Total Ripoff, because essentially it was running rings around the Basel banking regulations. So the first generation of products were called Bistro. But then after a few years, it became known as a synthetic collateralized debt obligation, which is a horribly clumsy word. But basically, um, that was a forerunner to the CDOs that we have heard so much about in the last few years. And I should just quickly say BIS is the Bank of International Settlements based in Basel, Switzerland. That's why it was BIS total ripoff. <laughs> right. Um, so basically, it sounds like this. Th- th- there's just a, a mixture of reasons here. They wanted to help banks offload risk. They wanted to make money for themselves, clearly. They wanted to help them sneak around regulation. Um, right. And, you know, they would argue that that's not all that sneaky, that basically what modern banking has been for decades is creating products to get around regulation that the bankers think is stupid and causes them to not make as much money or be as efficient as they want to be. And, and, you know, certainly in the mid-90s when this was happening, there was an awful lot of economists and even government officials who were sort of open to this idea that, that that is a good thing for banks to do, to get around regulation. What's interesting is that J.P. Morgan actually didn't expand this business that much. They sort of like, they, they did it. It was fairly successful in the 90s um, in the corporate loan area. But then they, and then they thought, well, maybe we could move into mortgages. And um, yeah, and then doing it. Right. It was, this is back in 1999. It's sort of amazing now. J.P. Morgan says, hey, let's apply this credit derivative strategy to mortgages. And they did some research and they said, oh, you can't apply it to mortgages. It doesn't make any sense because mortgages are too complicated. There's too much information out there and it's impossible to predict how mortgage-related credit derivatives will perform. So obviously we're not going to enter mortgage credit derivative businesses. And so in the end, this is clearly a tale about a bunch of prudent bankers taking a potentially destabilizing product quietly off the market. Uh, Yeah, not exactly. Not exactly. (laughs) If you then fast forward to five years, um, then what happened was, you know, a lot of people collect, copied the idea of synthetic CDOs and credit derivatives, and they started to apply it to the mortgage world. And so people started creating bundles of mortgage derivatives. And unlike the J.P. Morgan guys in 1999, they didn't stop and say, well, hang on a sec. How do we know this data is going to be good or bad? Because um, the subprime market is changing. Maybe we can't rely on figures from the past. Um, they just said, well, hey, it's making great profits. Let's go for it. Hey, hey Adam, can I, can I tell you what the paradox of this whole thing is? Yeah. The paradox is that J.P. Morgan was one of the first innovators in this area of credit derivatives. But they got out of the riskier parts of it long before their competitors did. And coming out of this crisis, they're the ones that everyone points to as sort of being the strongest of the big banks here. You know what I mean? Like they they sort of invented these things but ended up being the least damaged by them. Yeah. I mean, that's the central argument of her book. How did this one place, J.P. Morgan, sort of see the truth of these things relatively early on and, and so many other places didn't. And she certainly doesn't say J.P. Morgan is purely noble. All they care about is the benefit of mankind. But she does say there's this kind of squishy, hard to measure thing called culture. And J.P. Morgan had this culture, this history of employees who were loyal to the company, who saw their own benefit as being tied to the long term 
success of J.P. Morgan overall, whereas other companies had created a culture that was much more mercenary. Each person going out, you know, they the, the language on Wall Street is you eat what you kill. It's a very uh, violent and competitive nature. And, and she says that culture created success for J.P. Morgan, long-term success. They're clearly going to emerge from this crisis way ahead of of some of their competitors. That had this more mercenary. That had this more vicious competitive nature. Yeah. It's so interesting that that sort of what saved them in the end wasn't that they had better math or better quants or better sort of any of that sort of rocket scientist stuff that we've heard about, but they just had sort of maybe better management. (laughs) Exactly. And and I should say, and I just want to make this clear, Neither Jillian Tett nor us say J.P. Morgan is a perfect place. There's, you know, I'm, there's plenty of things that they did wrong. There's plenty of mistakes they've made, but they clearly did not make many of the the worst excesses that some of the others did. Right. All right, so um, let's go back. Let's. They still exist for. They still exist and have grown and continue to thrive. Right. Yes. So um, now we're going to get back to our Planet Money indicator. A reminder that indicator is three hundred and fifty dollars. So that is the amount. Planet Money listener Margaret Schultz from Oakland, California, pays per month for an apartment she lives in three days out of the week, which is in Fresno. Schultz is a management consultant who works with General Motors dealerships. In December, she found her position had been given to someone else, her former manager, whose job had been eliminated. And her company said, hey, don't worry, we do have a job for you, but there's a catch. The job is three hours away from where she lives. Margaret could not move her family. She has a husband and two small kids. So she started renting an apartment behind the house of an older couple. Yeah, it was pretty upsetting in the beginning of it, but I wanted to try to make it work, but it was really stressful. I I got very scared at night trying to sleep at night, uh, being in this weird place and all by myself. And um, it's not like being in a hotel room where I had this whole big building around me. So I don't know. The whole thing was really, um, it sort of threw our world around. Margaret says that she started to adjust to her new reality somewhat, but she still feels like she's living a parallel life during the week. And being away from her family is particularly hard on, on our kids. The six-year-old kind of can understand a little bit and it made him very sad. And he just on a pretty regular basis will say, Mommy, you've got to find another job that's right here in Oakland. You need to find a better job. You need to start looking for another job. And uh, he just wants me to be home. Like a lot of people dealing with pay cuts and furloughs and other job changes, Margaret feels like there's just not another option. I mean, what am I, what are my choices, really, except for to stay like, okay, I'm working. Today I'm working. And then it looks like I haven't gotten a call, so I'm probably working next week. Uh, and I'm going to say that I, I think I have to stay there because the alternative is scary. Like if suddenly I'm not working, I have no idea how we would last more than a month um, paying mortgage and all that. I, we couldn't. I mean, we're right at the edge. So um, I, maybe I just have to stay uh, happily in the dark about all of that. Uh, well, unfortunately for Margaret, that, 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 I don't know if she's going to be able to stay in the dark that much longer. Um, the axe hanging over her head is very real. GM says it plans to close 1,100 dealerships this year. Um, that list of dealerships hasn't been made public yet, so Margaret is just going to work this week waiting to hear bad news. Yeah, that's really, really tough. You know, Alex, I, one of the things that people have said in healthier times, what makes the U.S. economy so successful is – 
how mobile our workforce is. That's actually a rare thing in the world. Mm -hmm. um, that that people move around very easily for jobs. But that's what the part of the problem with this economic crisis right now is with the housing market collapsing. It locks people into their location because if they move, they probably will have to sell at a tremendous loss and still owe money on their old house while they're trying to afford a new house. It creates real uh, stickiness, geographical stickiness. You can't move easily to find new opportunities, which will make it harder for the economy as a whole to respond and and to to grow a, again. Um, so, right, because if Margaret, God forbid, does does lose her job, which then she's going to have to leave her um, house in Oakland. If she has to sell her house at a loss, it's going to keep. It's going to. It's just going to make it harder. It makes the whole thing sticky. It makes the whole, and it makes economic recovery that much harder. If Margaret can't move easily to find a new a new job, she's not going to have money in her pocket to spend, which is not, which is in turn going to just keep the economy basically sort of in the doldrums for a while. Right. Exactly. You want an economy where people can quickly move to where the jobs are. Mm -hmm. So it's just one more way in which this housing crisis is creating unexpected problems, even to people who had no intention of selling a house. And anyway, um, so that'll be it for us today here on Planet Money. Keep sharing your indicators and stories with us. Margaret posted hers to our Facebook group, which you should be able to easily find at Planet Money. Just search for Planet Money on Facebook. And you can also contact us here by email at planetmoney at npr.org. And don't forget to check out our blog for more great stories and pictures, npr.org slash money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thanks for listening.